Thank you so much for ministering to me in that way. And you might say, what way? Well, for singing like you have done. I wonder if we understand that. Sometimes we get all individualistic and think, well, I'm going to sing to myself and sing to the Lord. But no, not really. We're exhorted in the scriptures that we're to encourage one another by how? Psalms, singing and spiritual songs. And so, um, praise the Lord for being able to sing and encourage one another in song like you all have and we all have this morning. Thank you for the musicians as well who have done excellently once again and the sound desk, the media who have aided our worship so that we can be occupied alone with the Saviour. If you turn your Bibles to Second Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to launch into a subject that's got absolutely nothing to do with Valentine's Day, okay? <laughs> as you can see. And so we're just going to carry on with the text that we have been preaching through, the Second Corinthians, and um, we'll allow the scriptures to dictate the terms and also the subject in hand. And so let's read the first eight verses of Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who, has, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Many homiletics teachers, as some of you know, who have been to college and seminary, would suggest that you never ever start a sermon with a negative topic to engage the hearer. Well, I'm going to break all class rules this morning. As you can see, my slide up there is, may not be very positive to many of you. And, um, but we need to face facts as people, right, whether we're young or old. Death is a dilemma we all face, even though it's Valentine's Day. For it is true that really, that none of us escape this fact of life, no matter who we are. Death does not spare a single person and has not spared a single person bar Elijah and uh, Enoch being exceptions to that. As you know, they never saw death. Therefore, it would be accurate to say that death itself, we can call him enemy number one as it destroys the life we have under the sun as Steve has explained what that means. Life without God. A blog I read recently, and I read a few of them in my office here, quoted Psalm 49 and verse 10, and it says, 49 and verse 10 says, For he sees that even the wise die, 
The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Man and his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Then the same blogger went on and made an accurate statement by way of commentary and he says, You may have people thinking you are something and treating you as if you are great, but at death none of that makes it into your CV, your published PhDs, the captains of industry, the movers and the shakers on Twitter, the hall of famers, all perish alike. No matter how great you are, your body fertilises the same grass as the poodle buried next to your cemetery plot by a pet of Seth's neighbour. Pretty true, right? Old man, death is ever lurking. It takes some in the womb. While others who have lived nearly a hundred years and plus still understand that they will not escape its clutches. To some it comes suddenly and viciously. To others the writing has been on the wall through maybe periods of ill health. Some of us are even warned with a scary brush with death, as we call it, or a near-death experience. Or whatever the case may be, the destroyer will terminate us one way or another. And this is why mankind hates him. Oh man, death is ever abiding his time. And he's certainly enemy number one. And so men hate him, they fear him, and they will do anything to try and escape this inescapable reality. Underneath, you will see and maybe hear brave voices and see a brave face as they go all out in attempts to gloss over its reality and all its ugliness to them. People actually so hate him that even when they stare death at the face in funerals, they attempt to dumb him down and make him simple. And they will formalise they will formalize their denial of old man death at a funeral by calling it a celebration of life. Psalm 90 says, matter of factly, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Understand this, folks. Death is real bad news. It stings and in contemporary terms it really sucks. And mourning and lamenting over a deceased one or over death, whatever you may call it, is a right and a natural response. But listen up here. Is it bad news for the believer in Jesus Christ? That's the question. Does it really suck? Does it really sting to the believer? That's the question. The blogger I have recently quoted answered this question by saying something profoundly true of this inescapable enemy. He said, For a believer, death is an exciting reality and shouldn't make us avoid the topic because death is not the end of anything. It is the beginning of eternity. Praise God for that, right? 
That is so true. For the believer, death is an exciting reality. John MacArthur in his commentary describes death for the believer like this. For all death comes like an utterly unsympathetic landlord waving an eviction notice, but that eviction merely releases believers from a wretched earthly neighbourhood to an infinitely grand and glorious dwelling in the heavenly neighbourhood. For the believer, then, the sorrows, disappointments and sufferings of this life are worse than death. Death releases believers from the relatively dilapidated slum in which they now live and ushers them into a room in the house of the eternal Father in the heavenly city. Amen? What a glorious truth that is. This is so true, folks. This is so true. But let me pause here. What if you're not a Christian? Well, I can say at this stage, if you're not a Christian, you better fear death like you fear nothing else. Because it's coming to get you. And after that, it's an eternity of suffering and hell. If it was left to me, I wouldn't bring this message, but that's what Scripture teaches. Because of sin, God the righteous judge condemns sinners in their sin. But for the believer, but for the believer, those who trust in Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord, that's that's, that's the definition of a believer. Those who trust in Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. If old man death takes us before the Lord comes, who miraculously will snatch living believers away, we have that in 1 Thessalonians 4, it will be a sweet release into the eternal boat of heaven and we're all hanging out for that, right? As a matter of fact, we have every reason and motivation to confidently face death as a personal, glorious and a heavenly promotion. And in this text, I believe we have three motivations that the believer in Jesus Christ has so that he can face death when it comes confidently. Motivation number one is we get a perfect body upgrade. I was going to put the word make over there, but I thought the word upgrade is a lot better. The Apostle Paul, by the way, is not introducing anything brand new here. He's continuing on this massive new covenant teaching digression, remember? He kind of sidesteps and pushes this massive amount of scripture from early on in chapter 1 right through to chapter five and ver- uh, chapter 7 verse 5 in parenthesis. But in this parenthesis, in which we're still in now, he gives us some amazing new covenant teaching and we're continuing on with it here. Back in chapter 4 verse 17, he spoke of the momentary light affliction. This is where he was referring to the, to the physical battering and abuse and aging and sickness like that, that his body was experiencing at the time. Poor old Apostle Paul, he was wearing out, folks, and he knew it. So like some of us do, right? Benji knows it. He's got to get two new knees or one new knee. Karen knows it. She's got to get a new hip. We've all got to get something new or fixed. We're wearing out. And all this temporary, damaging, irreparable body stuff was what caused Paul to really long for a perfect body upgrade. 
And he saw amidst all his afflictions, what he saw was a huge light at the end of the tunnel, and he saw what? He saw an eternal weight of glory, which includes incorruptible, immortal, and a heavenly body. That's what it includes. And you'll note how the Apostle Paul continues to use metaphors that we have come in this section. In other words, word pictures. He has described believers so far as what? As a fragrance of Christ. Remember that? He's described believers as letters of Christ. He's described us as clay pots. Chapter 4. And now he, he talks about us being earthly tents and in the future how we will have a building from God. We see that in verse 1. Now the words we know at the beginning of verse 1 are quite important because what they simply mean is that believers can know with confidence. In other words, all this can be confidently approached. A perfect body upgrade is not some vague wish, but it is a certainty. It's a, it's a done deal kind of we know. That's what it is. Then Paul points, puts a little word in there. See in your text, he says, if. You see that? For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. This means that there is a clear possibility, that Paul was obviously had on his mind, a clear possibility that death or our house being torn down may be escaped. Now that's got to be good, right? After all, we don't go long and for death. We shouldn't do. Uh, and uh, he was anticipating a possible escape from that. And, um, and he saw that therein. So that's why he puts the word if, if in there. And so as Paul anticipated his escape from the clutches of death, so we need to ask at this point, well, how on earth could that happen? Paul teaches elsewhere of the real possibility of being caught up to be with the Lord uh, and before physical death took him and takes believers. He teaches that. So Paul viewed the return of Jesus Christ as something imminent, imminent, something that was about to happen. It could happen any time. He expected a snatching away of living believers as he describes in First Thessalonians chapter 4. He expected that to happen at any time and even when he was alive, possibly before he died. So he was a believer who believed in the imminent return of the Lord and I would suggest that's what we should hang on to too. I don't want to die, I would rather the Lord to come and snatch me away. Okay? And so that's what Paul was hanging out for. He's already told the Corinthians in our letter back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, we will not all die, that's what he's meaning there, but we will all be changed. There's the body upgrade. So Paul was not looking longingly for the undertaker, as I've said before. He was hanging out for the appetaker. Okay, that's what he was, that's what he was all about. This was Paul's desire. And of course, Paul also knew that death was a reality and many believers already had experienced that and would, or, would be experiencing that and will carry on experiencing death until the Lord comes. But Paul hoped even in his lifetime that the Lord would come. But he never, he still has not come. And it is here that Paul encourages believers with that if word, 
In other words, even if you die or even if your earthly tent, which is your house, is torn down. That's what he says here. That's what the word if means. Even if your earthly tent is torn down. Even if you die. In other words, this mortal limited frame God has given us to to house our eternal souls, that is the real us, if that body dies or if it sleeps, you know what? God will fit you out, fit your soul out with another building and another body that is immortal. That's what he's saying here. This will be body upgrade par excellence. It will be a perfect body. It will be body perfect. Perfect for the internal environment of heaven. Glorified body, just like Jesus' resurrection body. That's what it's going to be like. This body perfect is going to be a whole lot better than the last, right? It's going to be a whole lot better. So don't have the idea that in heaven we're going to be a whole bunch of disembodied, invisible souls floating around or whatever. No, no, it's not going to be like that. That's what it means when we see in verse 3, we will not be found naked. And in verse 4 again, unclothed. That's what, I, that's, what it, that's what it means here. Paul brings this idea. Well, what is he talking about? Uh, he brings this idea because you've got to understand the ton- context and even the historical context. At the time, there was this Greek philosophy, Greek thought going down. Uh, it was very dualistic that matter was, all spirit, that was spirit was good and all that was matter was evil and bad and so therefore our bodies must be bad and the ultimate reality of perfection, of, of, of heaven or whatever they thought it might be, was a spiritual sense. And so Paul refutes that here. The idea of disembodied souls and spirits being the, being the grand eternal state of the believer, it's rejected here, that's what Paul does. Yes, those who die in Christ... And many of us here, most of us here will have known believers who have died in Christ for a temporary period. Yes, they will um, be unclothed or naked, as it were. In other words, they do not receive their resurrection bodies the moment they die. But when Christ comes for his saints, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14 to 17, all those, it says, all those who have died in Christ will then receive their body upgrade with all those who are alive and remain to be forever with the Lord. We have a progression there. We have an order. Those who have died beforehand are going to be, going to be raised to be joined with those who are alive and changed gloriously. The writer of the Hebrews refers to this occasion when he says, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, Hebrews 12, 23. And so Paul was not looking for an eternal release, can we say, from his body through death. He wasn't looking for that. He was looking to the perfection of his resurrection body. He was looking past death. Our heavenly upgrade is about our souls being given another house. That's what it is. Another house, a glorified body. A a house not made without hands, our text tells us. Or or through earthly procreation, like our bodies are made now. But made by God for eternal living. And new bodies are going to be exactly that. That's why I cringe at the well-meant expression sometimes that God saves souls. 
Yes, he does, but it kind of gives the idea that bodies are forever bad and unredeemable. See what I mean? Folks, the Lord created bodies for Adam and Eve, right? And what did he call them? Very good. So let us not junk and dismiss what God has called very good. He saves and redeems the whole person. That will be the ultimate. He saves people, body and soul. Our physical bodies now we know as that are perishable and sinful and weak at their very best, but our glorified bodies, our new house, will be imperishable, they'll be sinless and they'll be potent like we know nothing of now. No wonder Paul is longingly motivated and he says, we groan longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And again in verse 4, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. No wonder he was really longing for that. Paul uses, by the way, the same kind of language when he, writes to, when he wrote to the Roman church in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. He says, Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our, what? Bodies. That's what he's waiting for. Paul reminded the Philippians of the same reality in chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. This is what he says to, the, to that church. He said, For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also we eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So there we have it. It's very clear in Scripture that this, um, this body upgrade is going to take place. This is going to be something else, right? It's going to be awesome. It's going to be beyond, really, our, our thinking and our imagination. They're going to be made perfect, so perfect that all our weaknesses and our perfections that we know now, they're going to be swallowed up by the perfection and the richness of eternal life. We will be like Jesus. So, as young and beautiful and healthy as you may be now, you ain't seen nothing yet, folks. But are you like Paul? Because we, have, we need to emulate Paul. That's what he's here for. Be imitators of me as I am also of Christ, he said. But are we, are we like that? Are we so burdened about the sin and wretchedness that so easily invades us, and we all know that, that we long to be clothed with God's house? Allow this perfect body upgrade to give us confidence in the face of death. Secondly, the perfect, God, perfect will of God will be fulfilled. This is another motivation of, for living in this day and age as believers. That God's will will be fulfilled. Now, we know that prayer well, but sometimes I wonder if we think about it. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It says in verse 5, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose. You see that? He who prepared us for this very purpose, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. I honestly believe many believers forget that they are a work of God in progress. Many of us seem to forget that. Too many seem to be saved and stuck. 
They love justification, but they ignore their sanctification and their glorification, as we heard clearly put to us last Sunday. It's so easy in this materialistic, hedonistic, all about me kind of world to be consumed, isn't it, with our own goals, our own dreams, our own purposes. And in the mix of all that, we tend to lose sight of God's eternal purpose for us. So we need to take stock and understand that our earthly goals, and don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with having earthly goals and ideals, etc., as long as they're in the mind and will aboard, but we need to understand that they are temporary at best. Very temporary. But God's purpose, His plans for us, has no ending. And you know what? His purposes for us, they were hatched in the mind of God in eternity past. Get a load of that. In eternity past, God sovereignly chose believers for salvation and in time he redeemed them and in future he will glorify them. That's his plan, that's his purpose. We should never lose sight of that. In other words, it has been God's sovereign plan, his perfect, complete will from eternity to give his chosen people glorified bodies. That's his plan. And may we align ourselves with it. This is what Romans 8, 28 to 30 tells us, right? Let me read those well-known passages again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's pretty clear, right? Folks, I believe too many Christians think that God has taken a rest. And so that qualifies us to take a rest as well. So much so that we rest and pursue primarily our own purposes and our own goals. That God's ultimate purpose does not end with justification, as we said before, but with our glorification when we become fully conformed to the image of Christ, when we will receive these resurrection bodies, that body upgrade, that's when the will of God for us is perfected in us. God's purpose and plan should cause our selfish agendas to fade into, into nothing when we drink into our very hearts and souls the truth of God's purposes. Because why? Wow! Ours are puny. So puny. If you live to 100, maybe you start to have purposes when you're 18 or 19 and they'll probably fade out and we'll forget them when we're about 80. But that's puny. God's purposes for us stretch from eternity past into eternity future. Now get a load of that. And he has you individually in his mind. We are sealed also. And and just to guarantee that, just to give us more confidence and more motivation to face death, he, he seals us with the Holy Spirit of promise. We have this also mentioned in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, 14. He says that he calls him the, the Spirit of God our guarantee. And he gives us this guarantee. We, we, we acquire this possession of his guarantee. What for? For the praise of his glory. 
We can be confident, folks. We can be as Christians, as believers. We can be confident and, and we should be and need to be motivated like the Apostle Paul and say, I am sure of this, that he who begun a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's what we should be thinking and that should what be going through our minds as Paul said to the Philippian church in Philippians 1 verse 6. God's perfect sovereign will for us will never be foiled but only ever perfectly fulfilled. You got that? Thirdly, our third motivation is the perfect home is with the Lord and we see this in verse 6 to 8. It says, therefore, you see that word, therefore, Basically, that points back to all the truth that has been spoken or he's written of in verses 1 to 5. In other words, what Paul is saying here, owing to these foundational truths concerning our future glorified body, we can always be of good courage as as believers who face death. Good courage, repeated again in in verse 8, is an action word and it means to be brave and courageous in the face of death. It's a little bit follow on from where Paul says twice earlier in chapter 4, be of good heart, be of good heart. This is now be brave and courageous. If death, in the face of death. You know, there's a little bit of truth in the adage, even for believers, in that old song picked up by bluegrass singers, Back in the days of dinosaurs, everybody wants to get to heaven, but nobody wants to die. You know, we love to live, and rightly so. I love to live. And I think, as God's children, we should love life that God has given us. And we should enjoy life. Because God has given us this physical life, as well as our eternal life, what for? so that we might glorify him. We'll glorify him in heaven in those perfected bodies, but we should be working out and pursuing holiness in order to glorify God in our physical bodies and in the here and now. And so we belong in this body that God has given us for his service and for his glory until he comes. But acknowledging at all times, the best is yet to come. So death is a reality that will catch us unless the Lord comes first. And he may. But we need not fear it. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians. Oh death, where is thy sting? It shouldn't have a sting for the believers. It's been removed because the best is yet to come. It's part of the journey. We need not fear it. It doesn't need to be something that we hate or even refuse to talk about or try to ignore by being sucked in with the cultural trends of calling funerals celebrations of life. They are not celebrations of life. They are funerals where we mourn and lament the death of one who has passed. And might I say, if there are unbelievers, our mourning should be greater because there is one who has gone into a lost eternity. Death is painful for mourners and we rightly lament 
those who die. Why? Because it reminds us, another again, it reminds us when we go to a funeral and we see death or see one who is about to die, it reminds us of the cross of Jesus, right? He died. It reminds us the cause of all death is sin, ultimately. Adam who plunged us into sin, the whole mankind, and we by nature and practice prove that we have a sinful nature. And that's what brought death. Romans chapter 5, to all. Funerals. Actually quite a gracious act of God because we could be reminded of the cross of Christ. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. He died for the ungodly. So anyone here, not a Christian, has every opportunity of bowing their heads and their hearts before the Lord right where you sit and saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sin. And praise the Lord, you will be taken from the broad road that leads to destruction and put on the narrow road that leads to eternal life. Simple as that. So let's not ignore or buff off the reality of death and pain, because it is painful and it's worthy of our serious contemplation and mourning. But more importantly, believers should never be so ignorant that we end up living in fear of this lamentable reality. And some believers do. I always remember an uncle of mine when I was a real young teenager who came to our house and he'd just been diagnosed with terminal cancer. He professed to know the Lord and I have no reason to doubt his faith, but I will always remember his doubts and fears and ignorance of what awaited him beyond the grave, even as a very young teenager. This man lacked good courage in the face of his impending death. The questions and doubts he raised with my dad impressed upon me at a very early age the need to know the whole redemptive action of God from eternity past to eternity future and how that impacted and what it meant for me. Folks, we can face death with good courage. Why? Because look at what God has in store for us. So what has he got on the other side, so to speak? Firstly, oh yes, he has a perfect body upgrade. Yes, he's got that. It's in store for us. And that's going to be divinely awesome, right? I I certainly need it. And uh, yeah, yeah, Benji knows that he needs it with his knees. Karen knows that she certainly needs it. And a whole lot of others. We all know that we need it. And this is very temporary bodies that we have. So that's one thing to be motivated. Secondly, God's perfect will is going to be fulfilled and and that will be an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison as the scriptures tell us in chapter 4 verse 17. So, you know, that is beyond words to to, to explain. But you know what? That's not Paul's primary focus here. The glory, the one pinnacle of Paul's heavenly anticipation is his resurrection body and him being at home with the Lord. You got that? At home with the Lord. He understood that while still in his present earthly body, he was absent from the Lord, his Saviour. He was not there yet. To be at home with the Lord was the perfection It was the crowning glory of all the realities of heaven for Paul to be at home with the Lord. Don't we want to be home, folks? Don't we want to be home? His life as a church planter, a tent maker, an apostle, a teacher, and a prisoner, and all the suffering and the pain and the ageing and the sickness in between, it was lived by faith by the apostle Paul. 
Live by faith. His life was motivated and driven by what his faith had laid hold upon. His faith was motivated and driven all throughout his life by that. The struggles of life and service for the Lord became secondary to the glory and perfection of being at home with the Lord one day. He accepted the temporiness of life and even death because he knew that by faith his eternal body abode would be at home with the Lord. What a motivation to live for God. He lived as we all should live. He was driven by faith and not by sight. Just like Abraham. Remember Abraham? By faith he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. Old Testament saints often referred to as they understood that their life journeys on, on the scene were, were strangers and exiles on the earth. Just like the psalmist who by faith could pen his heart's cry in, in Psalm 42 and verse 1 and 2. And this is what he says. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He was hanging out to be with the Lord, home with the Lord. My dear people, how we need to be men and women who live by faith. Not a faith that is just a vague, wishful thinking, but faith that is grounded and built upon the truth of Scriptures. Faith that patiently waits and understands that our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Is that the kind of faith you've got? Is that how you live? Is that your philosophy of living? What motivates you to live as a Christian? May it be the eternal weight of glory that includes a perfect body upgrade, seeing the perfect will of God fulfilled and also, above all, to be at home with the Lord. Trust these few thoughts will motivate you further to uh, live for the Lord. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we do give thanks this morning for your blessings and goodness and for every meditation and thought that has been impressed upon us through our songs and, and you're an awesome God. We thank you for the word of God that's been read to and reminded us that the best is yet to come and that we can, with confidence, even if death should take us, face that part of life confidently. So, Lord, motivate us. And may the word of God, you were, as we have read this morning, motivate us to live for you so that we might serve you for your glory and honour. Whether we're young or old, Lord, you know our journeys, you know our paths. And, but, Father, for those who belong to you this morning, may we be encouraged in these things that have been left for us. We give thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.